Uh, we're going to jump into Revelation now. So if you guys have a Bible, I encourage you guys to turn there. A device, you want to swipe there, I encourage you guys to do that. We, we haven't talked explicitly about this in our introduction the last number of weeks, but we talked about this pretty extensively in the first month or so of the book of Revelation, that Revelation is a book about Jesus. And so if we don't get to the gospel, if we don't end at the gospel, meaning Jesus' life, death, and his resurrection, then we're missing the point of the whole book. Now, Revelation is, as we talked about early on in this series, it's an apocalypse. So apocalypse meaning it's a revelation. But the revelation is really unique because it's happening through symbolic vision. So there's tons of symbolism that's happening within this book, which means then to read it literally is really problematic. To read the book literally is going to cause a lot of confusion. However, we are in a section of letters that's about the most straightforward, literal part of the book that we will find. But whether we're in chapters two and three, where we're at right now, and it's a bit more straightforward, or when we get into some of the crazy stuff that's upcoming in future chapters, at the end of the day, where we need to end up, where we need to be orienting ourselves around is Jesus. So we've got to get to him. So as we read chapter 3, verses 7 to 13, now uh, let's see how we're going to get to Jesus in this letter. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. God, thank you for these words. I pray that you would instruct us this morning. I pray that you would help us to hear what you want us to hear. Help us to get visions of Jesus that are true and right and compelling, and that transform us, that change us, that don't allow us to leave here the same as when we came in. So God, I pray that you would please have your way in us in these moments. In your name I pray. Amen. 
Okay, I want to start here in verse 13 with this reminder that we can kind of gloss over at the end of each sermon, but just a reminder for us to listen closely. Every letter is ending in this way. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. God's intent is for us to hear these words. Not, not just to assume we understand, not just to read them and then to check out, but to read these words and then let them massage our hearts so that we would be changed by these words, that his spirit would have sway in our hearts. And that's my hope for us in these moments that we're together this morning, but all these moments when we gather together on Sunday mornings, that these words, that we're not just accumulating knowledge, but that these words would actually change us in significant ways. So listen closely to what God's word has for us this morning. And there is a ton in these verses. To begin here, we could do a whole sermon on the description that Jesus is holy and true. But for the sake of time, this is really describing Jesus as that which is good and right and perfect. And the fact that Jesus is the epitome of truth. So these things, these are all things that we are yearning for in our everyday lives. Things that are good. Things that are right. Things that are true. We long for these things. And what this letter is saying in this description of Jesus as he is introduced to us is that only Jesus is holy and true. Only Jesus, in Jesus, will we find that which is good, right, perfect, and true. Okay, the idea of a door now is going to be pervasive over the next few sermons in Revelation. So I want to spend some time today honing in on this idea. Jesus is described here as possessing the key of David who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. So this is a rich reference back to the Old Testament book of Isaiah, okay, in Isaiah 22. And the context for Isaiah 22 is in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is like the city of, or, or the capital of Israel, but, but even more than that, okay, it is the city of God, and Jerusalem is swollen with pleasure at that time. Now, God calls them to turn from their sin, and their response to God's call for them to turn from their sin is to entertain themselves, and they say in Isaiah twenty-two thirteen, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So Jerusalem explicitly is resisting God and his call to them. Now, there was a leader in Jerusalem at that time named Shebna. God sets up Shebna as an example of the foolishness that is rampant within that city. Shebna trusted in many things other than God. He trusted in armies. He trusted in tools of warfare. And due to this foolishness, he's replaced by God's servant, named Eliakim. So regarding Eliakim, Isaiah 22 says this, I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and 
and none shall open. I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place. The peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way. So I hope you hear a quotation from Revelation, what we read in the letter we read to the church in Philadelphia. There's a quotation that comes from here in Isaiah 22. So Eliakim is seen as more loyal than Shebna. And he is then placed in a position of authority in which he's going to decide who does and who does not enter and exit the house of David. It says that he holds the key of David. So Eliakim is given massive power and authority in his role. But it proves too heavy for him. As it says, his peg gives way. And it leaves the reader yearning. At least it should leave, uh, leave the reader yearning for the one who can hold the keys to the house of David. And who that is, we find resolution in Re uh, Revelation 3. Jesus fulfills that which is lacking. Jesus is the one who can hold the keys of David. But he does this in a greater way. Jesus decides who enters. Jesus also shuts the door and ensures people don't leave. So in all of this, what we're reading about Jesus here in Revelation 3 is we should hear grace. We should hear grace. Verse 8 confronts us with even more grace as it says, I have set before you an open door. Now, I think it's easy for us to just kind of skim over a detail like this and completely miss some of the significance contained in a small detail like Jesus setting before these people an open door. So as I mentioned earlier uh, in our time together, we walk through doors all the time, every day. Doors are intended to keep us out of certain places, some doors are intended to keep us in other places. Doors provide some security, some privacy, some serenity at times. When we think of this spiritually, thinking of doors spiritually, we have to understand that sin is a doorway that seeks to lock us into a room of death. That's what sin seeks to do. Sin is a doorway that seeks to keep us away from God away from true freedom, away from true and lasting joy, and away from hope amidst trials that we encounter in our lives. Jesus, on the other hand, intends to let us out of a room of death. We read a number of uh, weeks ago in Revelation 118, Jesus holds the keys of death. Jesus is the way out of death. So this open door that stands in front of the Philadelphians is the way to God's presence, out of death and to God's presence. So then it is the way to our flourishing. It is the way to our satisfaction through forgiveness of our sin, the removal of our shame and condemnation, we are able to enter into God's presence. And that is where the door that Jesus holds open, leads. We also note that the door is opened uh, and how it became opened. Did the Philadelphians open this door? They didn't. They did not open it. To emphasize this, 
Jesus states that they have little power. So surely this people that has little power, that they are not opening this door. Furthermore, it is a door that no one is able to shut. So they're not the ones opening the door themselves. No one can come and shut that door. All of this is intended to convey grace. The fact that Jesus is the one who is in control. No one but Jesus opens the door nor closes the door. So Jesus is the door opener. Another way that we could say this is Jesus is the way maker. Where there is no way, Jesus makes away. John 14, 6, we find Jesus saying there, I am the way. The way to what? Jesus is the way to his father. We can also say that Jesus is ultimately the way to heaven itself. And early, uh, early Christians, they would take this reference that Jesus said when he said, I am the way, and they took that upon themselves, and they said that they were the way. This became a way that Christians referred to themselves being part of the way, and we read this at least six times in the book of Acts. So Jesus is the way maker, and the open door is a visual to emphasize that this is all grace. Many of us maybe have a picture. When we think of Jesus in a door, we've got that picture of Jesus standing at the door and knocking. And we're going to talk about that next week because that pops up in the next letter. All right. But before we get to that picture of Jesus knocking on the door, we first have this picture of Jesus. The door is open. There is an open door to Jesus. And it has been opened for us. We did not open it. Jesus opened that door for us. So we've got to hear really clearly, open door is a screaming reminder of God's grace, of us being given access to him. Okay, we also read here this idea that no one is able to shut it. This speaks to the security of Jesus' salvation. Since Jesus is the one who opens the door of salvation for us, we are not responsible then for holding the door open as though we have something to add to Jesus' salvation. So the point of emphasis here for us, for the reader, is that you cannot lose what God gives to you. If he's the one that opens the door, that draws us in, we're not going to be able to close that door. Only he can close the door. So provided we are trusting in Jesus, our security is found in him and the fact that he saved us. So this really pushes against the idea that we save ourselves in any capacity. We do not do things to earn something from God. We do not do anything to add to what Jesus does as Peyton was referring to in his prayer, this fact that Jesus is going to go to the cross. He is going to pay the penalty for our sin. There is nothing that we do in our day-to-day lives to pay the penalty for our sin. Nothing at all. Jesus does everything for us. That's what grace is. Not 
Jesus pays for our initial sins and then we're responsible for then paying off all of our sins the rest of our lives. No, Jesus pays for all of our sins, past, present, and future. So no one is able to shut this door provided we are trusting in Jesus. This affirmation to Philadelphia is dripping with grace over and over and over. Again, the phrase, I know that you have but little power. Now, when we hear this, we would typically hear this as a negative thing, as a criticism even. Interestingly though, this is spoken, written, smack dab in the middle of the affirmation, almost as though it's a part of the affirmation itself. And it is. The more physical strength and social power a person has, the more apt they are to trust in themselves, to trust in their work, to trust in their abilities. And, and it's, it's not that there are no really gifted or wealthy people who trust in Jesus. It's just that the majority of those people will not have a robust faith in Jesus because it's so easily easy to look to those other things, to trust in those other things. So in this, when, when Jesus is telling John to write, I know that you have but little power, we can actually see grace in our weakness, in being able to see our need for someone outside of ourselves that we don't we can understand in a greater way we don't have everything that we need one to save ourselves but even in our daily lives to make it through our days so it's intending to highlight our need for Jesus Paul one of the primary authors of the New Testament wrote this physical or bodily training is of some value but spiritual training is always value. So physical training, bodily training is of some value, but clearly not total value. I was talking with my boys last night and I asked them as I was putting them to bed, I, I asked them, what do you think is more important? Physical strength or physical weakness? And so we talked about that for a little bit last night, but I was just wrestling with this. As I was thinking through this in preparation this past week, I, I know where almost all of us will lean in answering that question. What is more important? Well, I think really quickly we'll say physical strength, and we can think of all the things that we can do for God's kingdom if we have strength. But the Bible pushes against this reality. It's the same idea like when people say, if I have more money, I, I can have more money to give to God and to further his kingdom. But so often that does not happen. So often the strength that we have is not being used for God's glory. So this is why Paul doesn't just acknowledge his weakness then. When you think about what's more important, what's more valuable, physical strength or physical weakness. Paul doesn't just acknowledge his weakness. 
He, he doesn't even just say, oh, it's good sometimes. What Paul does is he boasts about his physical weakness. Jesus told Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So Jesus is telling Paul that, that weakness, his weakness is a good thing. And that good things will result out of his weakness. And so then Paul's response to this, as he suffered in a myriad of ways, was, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, for when I am weak, then I am strong. So the little power in the church in Philadelphia actually aided them in keeping Jesus' word, in enduring in faith, in not denying Jesus. So Center Church, do you glory in strength or in weakness? When strong, how are you spending your strength? Are you using your strength on selfish pursuits, indulging yourself, entertaining yourself? Is that the race that Jesus has given us to run? Entertainment and indulgence? No, of course not. But let's be honest for a moment. We waste the strength God gives us oftentimes. I know I do. I waste the strength that God gives me a lot. Revelation is going to tell us we do this because we're listening to the lies of Satan rather than the promises of God. And the call is not then to whoop ourselves and say, do better. The call is, go back and remember who Jesus is and what he has done. That he was whooped for us. That he endured the cross. So that, as a way to change our hearts, not to guilt us into obedience, but to change our hearts so that we would know how he loves us and we would then live out of that reality. When we are strong, then, we will spend our energy and our lives seeking the advance of the most important thing in this world, which is the gospel. For those of us feeling weak, though, this is a really good word for us. Weakness is a gift. A gift so good that we can boast in it, provided we are able to see what it shouts at us. And what weakness shouts at us is that we are not enough. We need Jesus. Now, I fully acknowledge if you find yourself feeling weak, no one's going to wake up tomorrow and say, I choose weakness. Like, I, I want that necessarily. Usually, when we find ourselves 
in the spot of weakness. We would say, I wouldn't choose that, but maybe when we can look back on it years later, we can say, I can see how that was good for me. I can see how God was faithful. I can see how he taught me things about himself. In the midst of the weakness, it's hard to see those things. It's gut-wrenching oftentimes, but we need these reminders of truth that weakness is a gift. My hope is we could get to where the writer of Psalm 73 got. As he says, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Jesus is what we need. He is the door opener. Jesus is the way maker. He will make a way in the desert of weakness where we might not see it, we might not understand it, but he will hold our hand, he will carry us, he will bear us up in those moments of weakness. Okay, Jesus then speaks a word about the synagogue of Satan. These are Jewish people, the, the synagogue of Satan are Jewish people who are denying Jesus and slandering those who are following Jesus. They believe that their ethnic heritage and their ability to keep the Ten Commandments were the way into God's presence. Now, notice there isn't an outright judgment of these people here. It says that they will bow down before your feet. This is not happening so that the non-Christian Jews will worship the Christian Jews. That's not why this is happening. God wants these non-Christian Jews to see his love for the weak persecuted people in the Philadelphian church. He wants them to see that this is who God loves. And God's heart is ultimately that the persecutors would come to believe that he loves them also. It is God's love for sinners that is beautiful. Not sinners' so-called love for God which is feeble, which is faltering, which fails so often. What is beautiful is God's love for sinners. And this is what God desires that even these persecutors would see and understand. So for us today, this calls us to mission. Bringing Jesus to those who oppose us, who maybe snicker at us, who judge us or berate us or persecute us in some capacity, even bringing Jesus to those that annoy us. Your love for enemies is their exposure to the transforming otherworldly love of Jesus. Do you want others to see and to know God's love? Do you desire that for people? Or do you want to keep it for yourself? Maybe so that you can look at those people that have hurt you, that annoy you, and, and look down on them and feel better about yourself. Do you want those who've hurt you to get what they deserve? Or do you want them to receive grace like we've received? Grace is what 
we've received. This is where things get really tough. It's great to be on the receiving end of grace. It's much harder to be the one extending grace to those who have hurt us. But this is the call for us. This is what we're seeing modeled by Jesus as he's writing this letter to the church in Philadelphia. All right, verse 10 then pushes the idea of patient endurance at us. The life of faith requires this. It's going to continue to pop up this call to patient endurance. But there's this interesting promise that needs explanation here. It says, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. Now, hour is not literal. This is communicating a brief period of time. But what then is this trial? Will God remove Christians so that they don't suffer? And this is one of those big questions throughout Revelation. There's so many verses that we could go to throughout the New Testament that speak to the hardship that Christians will encounter in this world. You can't escape this reality. Christians are going to be persecuted. Christians should expect trials and trouble throughout their lives. So this is not saying we will avoid suffering. Also, there's just this continual emphasis in these letters to the churches uh, that's really helpful in this and understanding what this is saying. The letters are continually calling people to not deny the faith, that they're going to be tempted then to deny the faith. Also, these calls to patiently endure in faith. The implication is that they'll be tempted to not endure in faith, to give up the faith. God promises then to protect his church from spiritual apostasy, the idea that people would turn their back on Jesus. This is what Jesus promises to protect his people from, not from physical suffering. John 17, 15, this is right before Jesus is going to go to the cross and die. Jesus prays, I do not ask you, being his father, to take them, being his followers, out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. So Jesus is not even praying that his followers would be exempt from all the turmoil, the suffering that he knows he's going to experience. He's not praying that they would be exempted from that but that God would keep them from the evil one in the midst of suffering, that they would cling to Jesus. Satan is ultimately who Christians will be kept from. We see this supported in a really clear way later on in Revelation 13. And I'm not going to give full context here about Revelation 13. We will get there. Uh, but this is talking about a beast. And it says there, the beast was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. So notice, the beast, and think Satan here, okay, is making war on saints, on those who have been saved by Jesus. And he is conquering them. And authority was given, the beast, over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Worship it everyone whose name has not been written in the book of life. So notice how it says that he's going to have authority over all who dwell on earth. And it says all who dwell on earth will worship the beast. 
But then it gives this little distinction. Everyone whose name has not been written in the book of life. So that phrase, all who dwell on earth. Notice how in Revelation 3.10, we read this as well. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on earth. So Satan is going to attack, attack all. Many people will worship Satan. But those that are Jesus will be kept from worshiping Satan. They will endure in faith. And so this is when Jesus is talking about keeping them from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. This is not them being exempt from physical suffering. This is keeping them from turning their back on Jesus. All right, verse 11. It says, I am coming soon. Don't disregard this. So Jesus is saying, I'm coming soon. And we say, it's been 2,000 years. What's going on? When Jesus comes back to earth or when we die, whichever comes first, it's going to happen suddenly. It will feel like we read last week, like Jesus is a thief in the night. It will be sudden and abrupt. And that's what's being communicated when Jesus says, I'm coming soon. Verse 12, it talks about a pillar in the temple of my God. Philadelphia was well known for earthquakes. Much destruction had resulted in that region because of earthquakes. The pillars then, they were the secure part of the temple building. It helped to hold them together, allowed them to endure in the midst of the earthquakes. They were not moved because of the pillars in the temple. So as a child who is scared by a storm, and needs their parents' loving arms wrapped around them to provide them security. Christians, in the face of evil, need to trust in God's sturdy presence. And hear the emphasis here as it says, never, never shall he go out. We tell our kids rarely say always or never. When I read never, uh, this jumps out to me. The one who is a pillar in the temple of God, in God's temple, will never go out. Speaking again to the security, the assurance that God provides. Jesus holds the key. Jesus saves. And this cannot change. Lastly, we mentioned briefly uh, last week, the idea of names. In verse 12, we see again the prevalence of names. What Revelation reveals is that all people will be marked. Every single person is going to be marked. They're either marked by the beast or they are marked by Jesus. There's no other option. And, it, and so it's never a little more Jesus than the beast. It, it's not like you have one or both. It's either or. So either people will bear a hellish name or people will bear a heavenly name. Two brief points of gospel application then for us as we wind down. First of all, Jesus holds the keys. Jesus holds the keys. Who saves? Jesus saves. How does Jesus save? Through his works, not our own. Who can shut the door of salvation? Nobody. 
Satan can merely make it appear to be closed, but no one can actually shut the door of salvation. Who can take the keys away from Jesus? No one. When will people be kicked out? When will they, when will Jesus say, you are no longer saved? Never. Jesus holds the keys. Jesus saves. We trust in him. And lastly then here, there's a call to hold fast what you have. What do we have? We have, like the Philadelphians, little power. We have little power. But we do have Jesus, who has ultimate power. We also have grace. We have forgiveness. That's what we hold fast to. That's what we expend our energy, give ourselves over to, to the gospel, to believing the gospel. So walk through the open door of the gospel every single day. Don't assume the gospel. Don't minimize the gospel. Walk into, walk through the gospel over and over and over. Orient your whole life around the gospel.